Uh, my name's Ian and I'm going to do the Bible reading for us today. It's uh, from Revelations chapter 3 verses 7 to 13. It can be found on page 1091 from one of the Bibles up the back. The letter to Philadelphia. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews who are not but are lying, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of the, my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, Ian. Good morning, church at nine. It's very early for me, I've got to say. I'm one of the ministers here at OEC, and I look after church at four in particular, so this is very early for church for me in the morning. Um, and it's wonderful to be here with you and opening God's Word with you. Um, uh, in the handouts on the inside, there's an outline of the talk, um, and so that you can take notes there, you can see where we're going. Uh, please keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Well, there's some things in life that are just plain hard work that take the grind of just pushing on until a job is done. Uh, for a school assessment, one of my uh, one year, one of my kids needed to create what's called a Rube Goldberg machine. Um, what is that? That's basically a machine designed to perform a really simple task in a very complicated way through lots of trigger reactions, that chain reactions, something else, something else until the job is done. Um, our machine started with a series of chain reactions on Hot Wheels tracks and it went from there to triggering a domino run that got bigger and bigger until it started to push over a series of books that then triggered a remote control car that in turn triggered a water rocket. It was a fantastic elaborate chain reaction machine that took a long time to set up and the machine filled our second living room and then went outside into the paved area outside where the remote control was uh, and that's, that's, that's where the water rock was waiting patiently for the machine to come to its end, ultimate and explosive end. It was stacks of fun doing this together um, and until we tried to record the whole thing. The Hot Wheels car wouldn't trigger the next car rolling down the track. The dominoes wouldn't create enough momentum to start pushing over the books. 
every time, every ridiculous time something went wrong. We were numbering the times that we tried. This is take five on the extraordinary Blanche Goldberg machine. This is take 23 on this frustrating Blanche Goldberg machine. Take 51 on this stinking school assignment. Set it up again. Fail again. Are you kidding me? Set it up again. Now it's 11 o'clock at night. We're both frustrated, to say the least. Take 75. The chain reaction of cars all work. The domino run, faultless. The book run, yes, it's go this could be it. The second chain reaction, the remote control car goes. Yes, one more thing to happen. Does it have enough power to make the water rocket go? No. Are you kidding me? So what do we do? I rush over and trigger the stupid water rocket myself. Done. Let's go to bed. We'll pack it up in the morning. Some things in life just take persistent hard work. Perseverance. And some of the things we persevere in are great to persevere in. Like, but in the big scheme, they're not really that important. It was a frustrating night, but it was a great thing to remember. But there's some things that's vitally important to persevere in, like the hard work of relationships, like training when you want to be good at sport, like teaching a child how to drive. But persevering in the Christian life is high-stakes perseverance. It's high-stakes because what's at stake is eternal life. And if we fail to persevere... If we don't hold on to the end, eternal life is forfeit. This really matters. As we've been working our way through these seven letters to the churches that is in what's now Turkey, life as a Christian, we've seen life as a Christian in Roman times was tough. There was persecution. There were lies, temptations, the accusations of others. The temptation to give in was huge. And it's clear that there were many in these churches who were tempted to give up and some who already had, failing to persevere. These letters, in fact, the whole of the book of Revelation was written to these Christians to lift their eyes from the troubles that they were facing and the temptations that they had. To lift their eyes and see the wonder of what God has done, the wonder of what God is doing, and the wonder of what God will do. That's what the book of Revelation is really all about. And encouraging them to keep going. And it's the letter to the church in Philadelphia, that's the letter that really distills this message of perseverance and gives it to us. It's a church that's been holding on, that's been tested and tried and tempted, and they've been found faithful again and again and again. But then the temptation to give in is always there. So Jesus writes them a letter to remind them that holding on really is worth it. They really can trust him as they wait for him to return. So this is the letter that we need to be encouraged by too. We need to let this letter lift our eyes as well and be reminded of the hope to come, the joy of heaven, the work of Jesus now and the work that Jesus has done and completed for us. And be spurred on again to keep on going. Well, like all letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the letter 
to the church in Philadelphia begins with a reminder of who it is that's writing the letter, a reminder that really takes us back, as we saw, we looked at um, beginning of chapter 3 last week, to John chapter 1, the vision of Jesus that we see there. But each letter does it in a different way. So let's have a look at what Jesus, how Jesus introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia. Chapter 3, verse 7. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, he says. Now, as we see as we continue to go through this letter, the, the, the church in Philadelphia were facing the accusations of people who claimed to be the people of God but weren't. They were speaking lies and deceptions, seeking to take them away from Jesus. And so he reminds them, Jesus is the one who speaks the truth. Who is the truth? Who in the face of the lies and deceptions and false teachings of our world and the false teachers around us, he's the anchor of truth that we can hold on to and must not let go of. But we'll come back to that later. But as the verse goes on, we meet Jesus, the heavenly bouncer. Verse 7, the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one will open. He's the One who holds the keys to the kingdom of David, God's promised eternal king. He's the One who opens the door of the kingdom and closes the door of the kingdom. He opens it to let people in. And when he closes it, no one can open it. Jesus is the heavenly bouncer who alone holds the keys of the kingdom. But what do we learn about this city of struggle? What was it like to be a Christian in Philadelphia? Uh, Well, Philadelphia was a city just down the road from Sardis, the church that we looked at last week. So some 40 kilometres away. But it was a city that struggled at different times through its history. It was hit by a massive earthquake in AD 17 that levelled the town just about and they had to rebuild from scratch. In the early 90s, there was a Roman edict uh, enforcing the growing, the priority of planting and growing corn to feed the empire. And the land around Philadelphia was mostly used for vine growing. So this edict had a profound impact on that city. And many people decided to exit the city and seek better fortunes elsewhere. So it was a city that at times felt powerless, that felt weak that at times felt powerless under the persecution and accusations that had come their way. And we get a little window into what particular struggle they're facing in this letter from King Jesus in verse 9. I'll make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. So there's people in Philadelphia, there's people in that city who are causing the, the Christians in this city problems, who claim to be Jews, that is, claim to be people of God, but they're not. Unlike Jesus, who is the truth, these people speak lies, deceptions. Uh, In fact, Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. They are accusers, standing against the people of God. In fact, we've already met them. We met them in chapter 2, in the letter to the church at Smyrna. We met those people who claimed to be the people of God but aren't, who were also named as the synagogue of Satan in the letter to Smyrna. And we see in Smyrna they're people who slandered God's church, who opposed them, who troubled them. Uh, some suggest that they may, what may have been happening is that these false people of God, whoever they might have been, were joining forces with Roman authorities in times of periodic persecution 
and handing the Christians over to the authorities, seeking to see their downfall. That might have been what the church in Philadelphia was going through. Now, we don't have a lot of detail. Uh, I'm sure the people in the church of Philadelphia knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. But we don't get a lot of information. We're left to guess. But in a sense, that doesn't really matter. It keeps it general for us, which is actually helpful. What we do see is that the Christians in Philadelphia were treated terribly by people who considered themselves to be the true people of God. There were lies, there were accusations that led to persecution, possibly meaning loss of work, loss of income, loss of property. And they felt weak. They felt powerless. They felt helpless in the face of this opposition. But Jesus wanted to let them know that he knew their works. He saw their struggle. He saw their perseverance and endurance in the face of opposition, and he loved what he saw. Have a look at verse 8. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have little power. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus, the heavenly bouncer, is the one who has opened this door, this door of difficulty, this door of opportunity, this door of gospel challenge. And they might feel powerless, but he is the one who has allowed this to happen. And they have kept his word. They have not denied the name of Jesus. The pressure was on. Others were tempting them to give up on him, to escape the trouble by denying Christ, but they refused to. They stood firm. At cost to themselves, they proclaimed Christ. They said, yes, Jesus is my king. I follow him. He's my saviour. He's my king. I believe in him. I worship him alone. Do to me what you will, but I'm his. Imagine how encouraging it would have been for this church to receive this letter from Jesus, a church that feels weak, attacked, forgotten. And Jesus, their king, their saviour, says, I have seen how you honour me. I know your devotion. The church is a bit like a kid in a school that just keeps on getting picked on. Doesn't retaliate, just cops it. And the teacher, well, the teacher's part of the problem. Nothing the kid does is good enough. The teacher sees the bully and turns a blind eye, even favours the bullies of this child, giving them positions of influence, empowering them, enabling them, and the kid is powerless, weak in the face of the unfairness and the bullying. Then the kid gets called into the principal's office and the principal says, I can see what's happening. I can see how they treat you. And I know the teacher's the part of the problem. And the kid would say, well, like, what are you going to do? Can't you put an end to this? And the principal says, I will, but not yet. They will see the truth. Their lies will be revealed. The way they treat you will be exposed. They will see that you are honoured and loved. They will see that you were right and they were wrong. But for reasons you don't need to know, it will not happen yet. 
Trust me. Verse 9. I'll make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. They will know that I have loved you. The truth will out, the world will see. Jesus wants these Christians who are struggling to endure to lift their eyes, to see the bigger picture, he's in control. Not those who cause them pain, they're not in control, he is. And he wants them to know he loves them. He sees them. He knows them. What wonderful personal words. Those in what Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan, they accuse the Christians in Philadelphia of being fakes. That instead, rather, they are the true people of God. And Jesus says, what they think is irrelevant, actually. What I think matters, and I love you, and you will be vindicated, and the world will see that you are mine. I don't know what troubles you're facing now, what temptations, what difficulties, what persecutions you're enduring. Maybe lies that people say about you, maybe temptations that you feel to deny the name of Jesus. In this letter, Jesus wants you to lift your eyes, consider the truth that he is the one whose opinion really matters. He is the one who the world and you will answer to. He is our Lord and Saviour and he loves you. He sees your endurance. He loves to see you refuse to deny his name, but instead clearly proclaim him, own the name Christian, follower of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't yet trust in Jesus, it is so good that you're here. If you don't know the wonder of being loved by him, then let me ask you to seriously consider whether the words of those around you matter more more than the words of the one who made you and who died for you and one day you will face. The word of God causes us to lift our eyes from the immediate needs and concerns and pleasures of our world and consider the bigger picture and in particular the truth that this, what we have in this world is not all there is. That Jesus is Lord and the one that we will in the end answer to, our maker, our judge. And so let me ask you, are you ready to face him? Will you take time to consider that the opinion that really matters is his? the one who died for our sins, who rose and defeated the power of death and who promised to return. He's the one who can let you into the eternal dwelling that you were created for. And he's the one also that can close the door. So won't you let him in? But there's one thing missing in this letter to the church in Philadelphia because each of these letters follows a particular pattern. But in this letter, there's one part of the pattern that's missing. I wonder if you noticed it. Well, a reminder first of the power of Jesus who writes the letter. That's how they all start. Tick, this one has that. The church is then commended by Jesus with a word of encouragement. Tick, we've definitely got that one. 
Then there's usually a word of warning, something that Jesus has against the church, something that they're getting wrong, a rebuke. And that's what's missing in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. It's not that they never sin. It's not that they never fail. But these Christians in this church are serving and loving together in the midst of suffering and testing and trial. And they've passed the test so far. And so Jesus has a command for them. Verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Hold on to what you have. What you've learned, what, and what have we learned about what they have? What, are they, what have they got? What is, a, what is it that Jesus is talking about? What they have is the truth. What they have is the love of their Lord and their judge. What they have is the hope of eternal life. That's what they've got. This church has been faithful in the face of temptation and opposition, where other churches have not been faithful, given in to idolatry and immorality, swallowing the lies of the world and the false teachers around them. But this church is faithful. They've not denied the name of Jesus, but he says, persevere, don't give in. I want to share to you an amazing story of perseverance. Let me introduce to you Jane, uh, sorry, John Stephen Aquari. He ran the marathon, 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Aquari um, was never likely to win the mar men's marathon. He was good, but he wasn't quite that good. But his chances were wrecked when he was inflicted by persistent cramps that slowed his progress, possibly due to the high altitude at Mexico City. So his progress was painful, but then it got worse because he was involved in a melee of athletes jockeying for position and Aquari fell to the ground. He smashed his shoulder against the pavement. He gashed and dislocated his knee. He had to stop to receive medical treatment and despite being encouraged to go to hospital, he got back on the track and kept running. Determined to finish the race, 18 of the 75 starters had already pulled out. He was not going to be number 19. He kept running. Then finally, he came to the finish line. More than an hour after the winner had gone past, they'd already given out the medals. The sun had set. I was cheered home by thousands of spectators in that failing light after sunset. And he was asked why he'd carried on. And his response has gone down in sporting history. He said this, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Christian life is like a marathon, as we heard earlier, as Scott said. It takes perseverance. We need to hold on to what we have, just like Aquari's marathon. Starting's great, isn't it? But we weren't saved to start the Christian life. We were saved to finish it. Akwari held on, persevered, was motivated by what he came to do, was sent to do by his country. The church in Philadelphia were reminded that what they had is all that they needed. They were told by others that the Jesus they knew wasn't the real deal, that they weren't the true people of God, but they held on. They refused to be deceived. And Jesus wrote them a letter commending them for enduring, encouraging them to lift their eyes and not deny his name, commanding them to keep going. 
We're all running the Christian marathon, trusting Jesus through our own struggles and temptations, waiting for the return of our King. I don't know how you're feeling at the moment in this race. Do you feel encouraged? Maybe you feel a bit like Akwari after digging his shoulder into the pavement and gashing and dislocating his knee. Feeling battered and bruised, struggling to see whether it's all worth it. Most of us, I suspect, are somewhere in between those two extremes. Tired, weary, the end seems a long way off. Maybe you're tempted by the surroundings where it seems so much easier to exit the race and jump into a coffee shop. And forget about the race altogether. What can we learn from this exemplary church in Philadelphia to help us stand firm? There's four things I think we learn from this short letter. Firstly, hold on to what we have. The church in Philadelphia are reminded of the Jesus that they trusted in and believed. The Holy One, the True One, the one in chapter 1 who was dead but is now alive. No matter what others say about you, Jesus doesn't change. He's died, he's risen, his words are true. Let his words, who he is, help you discern the deceptions of this world and the false teachers. Hold on to what you have. Hold on, and verse 12, you'll be honoured in the new Jerusalem. You'll belong to Jesus, you'll be his forever. Don't give that up. Secondly, lift your eyes to the prize at the end. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The word for crown here is not a royal crown. It's the, it's the wreath that someone would win at the end of a race, like a marathon. So lift your eyes and remember the struggles and temptations and the things of this world, that in the midst of those, that the persecutions, the taunts and the temptations will end. We'll face Jesus who will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to your rest. That day's coming. So lift your eyes and help that truth push you on. Third thing, remember you're not doing this alone. This is where the illustration of the marathon breaks down because the marathon is a race you do on your own, not with others. It's a singular struggle against the, the difficulties of your own body. But when Jesus writes the letter to the church in Philadelphia, he writes to a church. He writes to them together not to individuals on their own, but a church that exhorts to hold on to what they have together. So in this struggle, never give up meeting together. Never make church or growth group or adrenalites something you come to just because there's nothing else important on. Now come, because we hold on together. Let's do that. Fourthly, finally, verse 13, listen. This letter ends like all the other letters end with these words. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The way we hold on to what we have, the way we persevere and grow, is to continue to listen to the words and encouragements and commands of our King together. We listen and obey, we listen and trust, we listen and repent. Stop listening and you won't survive. You won't last. Listen instead to the deceptions of the world and we'll give up running altogether. We'll seek rest and fulfilment in the things that we have here. Listen to the deceptions of those who will turn us away from Jesus 
the Jesus we know in the scriptures and we'll be disqualified from the prize. You won't make it to the end of the marathon. We need to let the word of God dwell on us richly together. As together we run this race to the end, together receive the victor's crown and the welcome of our holy and true one, the one who holds the key of David and opens the door to the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray we would do that. Father God, we want to pray for all of us here today, those who are encouraged, those who are really struggling, and everybody in between. Help us to listen. Help us to hold on together. Help us to lift our eyes. Help us to encourage one another. Help us hold on to what we have. Help us never to give up. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.